The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So, good morning and welcome to our sutta study today. Um, I have to say that kind of my heart sings actually to be here and to um, be able to share this with you all. I've been studying the suttas and I've been inspired by them, I've been confused by them, I've been angered by them, but it's been something that's been kind of fun to kind of uh, dig into and explore, and I'm happy to and excited to share this with all of you. And maybe through the course of the day, maybe you'll be inspired and angered and confused. <laughs> I hope not, but maybe if that's true, that we can share and talk about it and discuss it. So the topic today are paths of practice, and specifically a few that are in the Majjama Nikaya. Majjama Nikaya is translated as the middle length discourses, and I'm going to um, talk about them in context. And first I'll start with the context of what is the Majjama Nikaya. So for those of you who don't know, the, um, the Buddhist canon is really giant. It's really big. So what we consider or what the in the tradition considered sacred literature is I don't I actually don't know how big. I don't think all of it's been translated into English. Some of it is still in Pali. But in general the um the canon is broken into three baskets is the word that's used, three categories. The first is the Vinaya. This is the rules for the monastics, primarily the monks. There's a lot of rules of exactly how they should behave. And included in that are stories of why that rule was made. So there's some interesting things in there. That's the first basket. The second basket is the sutta pitaka. And that's the one where the manjama is in. Sutta, we can think of it as like scripture. That's not exactly what the word is, but we can think of it that way as scripture. And then the third basket is the abhidhamma. And that's a very uh, systematic, philosophical um, rendering of the basics of reality. And it's filled with lots and lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of lists. So that's the Abhidhamma. So we're doing the middle basket, the Sutta Pitaka. So within that basket, the Sutta Pitaka, there are five collections. And the Majjama is one of five. So this is the Majjama Nikaya. The first, I, I don't know why exactly, but these collections are listed usually in this order. The first is the Diga Nikaya, the long discourses of the Buddha. Long, because they're long. They're the longest ones, just the length of them are long. The second is the Majjama Nikaya, this one that we're going to do. Translated as the middle length discourses, because you guessed it, they're of middle length. They're not too long, they're not too short. They're the middle length. Then is the Samyutta Nikaya, which is the connected discourses. And those are um, where they take a particular theme and lots and lots of suttas about one theme. For example, there is one that's called the Maga Samyutta path. So there's one that's all about path. Interestingly, what's in there is very different than what's in here about path. And the last one is the Anguttara Nikaya. 
the numerical discourses, discourses. And those are organized by number. All the things that, you know how the Buddha likes to have lists, right? It's kind of his pedagogical style. All the things that are ones put in one chapter. All the things that are twos are put in a second chapter. All the things that are threes in a third chapter, so on, up to the number 11. There's a lot of interesting things in there. So that's one way that um, these collections are organized is by their contents and length. But scholars now say there's a second reason. There's a reason why they chose to organize the collection in this this particular way. The Diga Nikaya, the long discourses, is um, by the flavor of the things that are in there and the content of what's in there, that these uh, stories tend to be... um, um, we could say for conversion purposes. For there, are a lot of them are directed towards practitioners who were not Buddhists, who are other practitioners in ancient India at the time. And there's a lot of um, fanciful stories. There's a lot of um, what some people would, uh, some scholars even dare to use the word propaganda, like to make Buddhism look really good. So there's a lot of really interesting, juicy things in there. The Majjama Nikaya, the ones that we're going to be talking about today, um, the scholars believe that this is used as a manual for new monks. What are the general ways you should practice? What are the rules, the general rules that you should follow? And what are the basic teachings of the Buddha? And this is the one that in our tradition today, most of the times when Dharma teachers are giving talks, they're um, drawing from this. Kind of makes sense, because we're practitioners too. And we're the um, contemporary equivalent of new monks in the sense that we're practitioners. The third collection, uh, the Samyutta, is because it takes a theme and has lots and lots of suttas about a particular theme. The theory was those were for more advanced practitioners. Either if you were a practitioner for uh, philosophy, you were somebody who was really interested in the how things are, then some of the themes are about that and goes into a lot of detail. Or perhaps um, you were an advanced practitioner in terms of meditation. And then there's a lot of um, discourses in there about advanced states of meditation or how to uh, meditate or things like that. So that's in the Samyutta, is um, for advanced practitioners. The fourth is the Anguttara, and that is um, the numerical discourse, the ones that are by ones. And that was thought that that is a collection that's used um, in an instruction manual. Lists help us remember things. So the thinking was, this is what a teacher would use to teach younger monks. You know, like, class, we're going to go through the list of twos. Remember all these twos, or something like this. Now I remember that I was remiss in saying there's a fifth collection, the Kudaka Nikaya. And this one um, is a collection of anthologies. So the Dhammapada, which Gil has uh, translated, has done in verse, it's a really nice collection. It's um, probably the most translated bit of the Pali Canon. That's in the Kudaka Nikaya. The Metta Sutta that many of us chant or that we're familiar with, that's also in the Kutaka Nikaya as part of a collection. So um, that's the fifth book. And I'm not sure. The fifth book also has, it's the biggest, and it has a, such a wide, wide, wide variety of things in it. Parts of it haven't been translated into English. So um, 
I just give this as an introduction that when we're talking about the Majjhima Nikaya, we can think about, in general, things that are uh, put here are instructions for monks. And that may influence um, how we think about what's in there. So now I'm going to talk a little bit about... Um, like I keep on holding up a book, right? Of course, in ancient India, there were no books. They didn't go to the library. They didn't have... A, um, they couldn't go on the internet, of course, right, and check them out. Instead, these were preserved orally. This was a tradition that they just memorized, certain monks memorized. And um, I can imagine that, you know, a group of monks memorized these suttas, another group memorized those, and the third group memorized these. Maybe, I don't know, there's many of different ways we can hold this. But a consequence of it being um, something that was memorized as opposed to written down is that there's a lot of repetition in them. I think that was a way to kind of, as a mnemonic uh, device, is to have like these stock phrases and to also have a lot of repetition, as well as a lot of lists, as I mentioned early. And then um, here's a story that I'm telling myself that um, I'm... I share this, maybe it's useful for you. I can't say there's a lot of data to support this, but this is how I'm holding it. There had to be individuals that memorized these suttas through the ages before they got written down. But maybe those individuals who decided to um, memorize them that were holding them, were there's a certain, I'll use the word selection bias, a certain personality type that is more apt to want to memorize these suttas verbatim. Know, and pass them on to their student and get them from their teacher. But maybe, maybe, in ancient India at that time, there were other practitioners who didn't have that disposition, who didn't have that personality type, weren't so inclined to be memorizing teachings. And maybe they had, their practices were a little bit different. Maybe the similes they used were a little bit different. And in particular, I'm thinking about women, Maybe, I don't know this, maybe there were women practitioners who um, the suttas that they were holding and the practices that they were holding had um, included similes had to do with childbirth or nursing or menstruation or parenting or husbands or things like this. But just because um, they were of the nature to be less concerned about the nerdy type over here that were memorizing them, then that didn't get um, safe through the tradition up to now. I don't know if this is true, but this is, as a woman, this is how I'm holding this. Because the suttas we find here are really, I'll use this word, androcentric. They're really, you know, about men. And it's a men's viewpoint and a men talking to other men. And when they talk about women, they're not usually saying how wonderful they are. Sometimes they do, but not always. So I'm just offering this as a way to think about there could have been a selection bias of what ends up finally in our suttas in contemporary time today. One more thing I'm going to say about um, sacred literature in general is I'm going to ask us to consider what authority do we give to things that are in the suttas. Today, in the world, there are individuals who say, this is of the utmost importance, 
if it's in here, this is true. It was said by the Buddha, and we should strive by all means to do whatever's said here. And if it doesn't make sense to us, it's simply because we are not wise enough. There are some people who say, well, this is a, um, a consequence, an output of ancient India. There's a, maybe a collection of authors through hundreds of years. So maybe there's some putting in, taking out. And these are more um, literature. So these are like composed, intentionally composed. And some of it may be more true or more accurate than others. Right? So, that's, so there's other people that hold it that way. Maybe there's a third group of people who are saying, well, I'm just interested about the history. What was India like at this time? And what can we learn about the history? What did people do? Um, what were their concerns? And there's a, a third way to hold this. My um, intention today is to hold, to respect all these different positions and to recognize that maybe... Um, that all can be true, or that we don't have to know which one maybe... uh, Maybe I'll say this. For myself, I don't know. I don't know. Is this really true what the Buddha said? Is this part of um, something that a community put together over time? But I don't feel like I need to know. As I said, I still feel inspired. I still feel... It still affects my practice. But I I do want, um, as we talk about this, to hold in mind what authority you hold this, and then what authority do teachers have, and what authority does your own experience have. So these are three things today we can hold as authoritative. The suttas, what our teachers tell us, what we read in books perhaps, um, as well as our own experience. So I just kind of want to put that out there. Maybe I'll pause here for a moment. Are there any questions? Great <laughs> Thank you, Meg. Oh, yes. Yes, we are. Thank you. I have heard people express strong feelings. Um, at this time of Buddhism coming into America, coming to the West, and the importance, the significance of these books um, into kind of grounding the experience. I, I think some people, there's always a balance of we're who we are, we're not ancient India. And uh, many of us do not have, have um, I, I don't have Asian uh, heritage. Um, but uh, sometimes the, the book's significance is also as a balance point. That's all. That, I've heard people say that. That's all. Yeah. Thank you for saying that. And I'll say that um, Gil, who teaches here, you may have seen him before, this, um, something that he said, which I thought was really impactful, he said that um, we, in the West we may be doing our own thing, things a little bit differently, but if we're going to deviate, quote-unquote, it's good to know from what we are deviating and to know that, in fact, we are deviating. So I know that he holds that. Okay, so I talked a little bit about what are um, the suttas and the nikayas. Now let's talk about the idea of a path. That's what we're going to talk about today. So many of us are familiar with the path, maybe specifically the Eightfold Noble Path. This is one that's um, core teaching in our tradition. 
It's um, the fourth truth of the Four Noble Truths, the way leading to the cessation of suffering, the Noble Eightfold Path. But there's also um, a number of different paths, and some of them we're going to talk about today. And But one thing that I want to emphasize is that the idea of a path is something that has a beginning and a middle and an end. It's not an instant. It's something that's gradual and it's progressive. It kind of moves along. And um, we can think about this um, as a way that we think about human development as well, right? We're children, we're teenagers, we're adults. And as adults, we kind of build on what we learned earlier in our lives, maybe for better or for worse, right? But that there's a kind of a building. And the same is the idea about a path. And there's a few quotes um, from the suttas. Here's one that's from Majjhima 70, where the Buddha says, bhikkhus, bhikkhus, that's um, the word for monks. This means he's addressing the monks. I do not say that final knowledge is achieved all at once. On the contrary, final knowledge is achieved by gradual training, gradual practice, gradual progress. Okay, that's pretty clear. There are some um, schools of Buddhism who would differentiate from this and would disagree with this and said that, in fact, it is um, sudden. But uh, in the kind of the tradition we have here at uh, IMC, it's this idea of gradual. Here's a second quote. This is from the Anguttara Nikaya. Just as the great ocean slants slopes and inclines gradually, not dropping off abruptly, so too, in this Dhamma and discipline, penetration to final knowledge occurs by gradual training, gradual activity, and gradual practice, not abruptly. That's pretty clear. And if you're not convinced, I have a third one, third quote. And this is kind of a, I actually like this, uh, it's a story where the bhikkhu is, uh, sorry, the Buddha is talking to a Brahmin who is a non-Buddhist but a religious practitioner. We'll talk a little bit more about them in a moment. But he says to this person, suppose a man came who wanted to go to Rajagaha, which is a city, and he approached you and said, venerable sir, I want to go to Rajagaha, Show me the way to Rajagaha. Then you told him, Now, good man, this road leads to Rajagaha. Follow it for a while, and you'll see a certain village. Go a little further, and you'll see a certain town. Go a little further, and you'll see Rajagaha, with its lovely parks, groves, meadows, and ponds. Then, having been thus advised and instructed by you, this person takes a wrong road and goes to the west. Then a second person comes who wanted to go to Rajagaha, and she approached you and said, Venerable sir, I want to go to Rajagaha. Then you told her, Now, good woman, this road goes to Rajagaha. Follow it for a while. First you'll see a town. And you'll see a village, and then you'll see Rajagaha with its lovely parks and groves, meadows, and ponds. Then, having been thus advised and instructed by you, she safely arrives at Rajagaha. She follows the instructions. 
Now, Brahman, since Rajagaha exists, and the path leading to Rajagaha exists, and you are present as the guide, what is the cause? What is the reason? Why, when those persons have been thus advised and instructed by you, one takes the wrong road and goes to the west, and the other arrives safely in Rajagaha. And this person responds, But what can I do about that, Master Gautama? I am only the one who shows the way. And you can imagine what, he's, what the Buddha says. So too, Brahman, Nibbana exists. The path leading exists to Nibbana exists. And I am present as the guide. Yet, when my disciples have been thus advised and instructed by me, some of them attain Nibbana as the ultimate goal, and some do not. What can I do about that? I am the only the one who shows the way. So this is very clear, right? That the Tathagata is showing the way, of course, but somebody has to listen to the Dhamma and has to actually go walking on this path, this gradual path we're going to be talking about. Okay, so with this as an analogy, I'm going to say that there are four different paths, four different ways to Nibbana. We'll talk about them in different ways. One is the gradual training. This is um, exemplified in Majjhima 27, the Chulahati Padopama Sutta, which is a mouthful in Pali and in English, the shorter discourse on the simile of the elephant's footprint. So that's 27. We'll talk about that today. And then there's another um, path, which um, I'm going to call the discovery of truth. And that's in the Chanki Sutta. Um, Chanki is somebody's name. And that's Majjama 95. And we'll talk about that today. There's a third path to purify the mind from defilements, and that's in the Vedupama Sutta, the simile of the cloth, and that's Majjama 7. We'll talk about that today. And then the eighth, I'm sorry, the fourth one is the Noble Eightfold Path. <clears throat> so I'll start a little bit with this, um, the gradual training that's in Majjama 27. A version of this gradual training, may, some of you may have not, may, you may be thinking, well, what's the gradual training? It's a safe path. Of course it is. I've heard about it a bazillion times. This is actually um, a little bit different, and we're going to talk about how it's different and um, its relationship to the Eightfold Path. And it's not something that's obscure. It's in 29 different suttas in, with different variations. Um, some, some steps are in a little bit different order. Maybe some of them have um, similes. Some of them emphasize supernatural states that you can attain when you finally get there, and some of them completely omit these supernatural states. And this um, gradual training is offered, the Buddha gives it in different contexts. Sometimes, uh, for example, I'll say what I wrote my thesis on, in um, the Diga Nikaya uh, 3, in the Ambata Sutta, the Buddha is asked, what is knowledge and conduct? And then he gives this gradual training on knowledge and conduct is this. <clears throat> it's also um, the question, how does one behave if you're a recluse, if you're a, an ascetic, if you're a samana? 
I'll talk a little bit about that. And the Buddha gives the gradual training. This is what you do. And then the version that we're going to look at today is the question is, how can one conclude that the Blessed One, the Buddha, is fully enlightened and that the Dhamma is well proclaimed by the Blessed One and that the Sangha is practicing the good way? So he wants to, how, how can you know for sure? And the answer is you do this gradual training and then at the end you'll have this clarity of wisdom that will enable you to see that indeed the Buddha is awakened and the Dhamma is uh, well proclaimed. So because that the same gradual training is offered with very little variation, some of it's exactly the same. In fact, in some of the Pali, it says, here's the story, and then it'll say, go look to this sutta over here to get the gradual training and then come back here. Right? It's verbatim the same. Some scholars have said, actually, this is not meant to be a real training for people to follow. It's actually just uh, the expression that's been used is a hypothetical case history. Like this is, uh, this person, this scholar was comparing it to like psychology or I used earlier like development. If you're, this is a case of development, this is how an ideal practitioner would start here and go through here. Not with expectation that everybody must start here and end there, but this is the generalized case history of a practitioner. So that's the gradual training. And then the discovery of truth, that's in two suttas, one we're going to look at today, 95, the Chanki Sutta, and 70, the Kitagiri Sutta, both in the Manjama. Um, And the context of this is, how do you know the ultimate truth? How do you find the ultimate truth? Here with the understanding that the ultimate truth is part of, of like Nibbana, that's when you find the ultimate truth or attain that. The third training is um, how to have an undefiled mind. The same idea that nibbana, when you, the realization, the attainment of nibbana, your mind is not defiled by anything. There's a purity of it, and how to um, do the, find this purity or this undefiled mind is this third path of practice, and then the fourth, as I said, is the eightfold path. And maybe I'll mention that there's also a tenfold path that we don't talk about quite as often, but um, the ninth and the tenth factor, I only mention, I'm going to talk about these really briefly, is um, right knowledge and right liberation. So um, for those of you who know the eightfold path, it doesn't really talk about what happens at the moment of awakening, and the tenfold path includes those in there. So, um, for those of you who have um, heard teachings about the Eightfold Path, or even perhaps are in this Eightfold Path mentoring program, you probably have heard people say, well, you don't really have to start with the very first factor, right view, or then right intention. You start where you are, and you do this practice, um, you work with... uh, the Eightfold Path is more like eight different aspects of a path of practice as opposed to step one, step two, step three. So in some ways, maybe it's not a path at all. It's just a collection of activities. 
So with that as um, um, kind of a introduction, uh, there's one scholar who says this gradual training maybe isn't a gradual training that's offered. Instead, this is a hypothetical case history. And the eightfold path, well, maybe it doesn't go from one to eight. Maybe it's just different aspects. And maybe in contemporary uh, teachers today would say, you start where you are. You start with what uh, makes sense. So I'm going to summarize the path in this three way in this way, which I think will be familiar to most of you, as sila, samadhi, panya. Sila means ethics, morality, how we be, treat others, how we behave with others. Um, in the eightfold path, it's um, how speech, action, and livelihood. Sila. That's the first. Second, samadhi. It's usually translated as concentration. In the Eightfold Path, it has effort, mindfulness, and concentration. So effort is, I like to think about, maybe creating the conditions for meditation and actual med- meditation. That's in the second bucket, we'll call it, samadhi. The third, panya. In the Eightfold Path, it has view an intention, and I'm going to also put in there um, right knowledge and right liberation for the ninth and tenth path. Sila, samadhi, panya. Sila is ethics, morality. Samadhi, meditation practice. Panya, wisdom. So now, just because I've been talking here for a while and to kind of um, get the energy up in the room a little bit, I'm going to ask us to, um, we're going to break up into groups, and I'm going to ask um, one group to convince us, why is sila the best place to start any path of practice? And you can use your definition of sila ethics that makes sense to you. Another group, why is samadhi, why is concentration the best place to start a path of practice? And then third, Panya, wisdom. Why is that the best place? And maybe I'll add here for Panya, wisdom. Like, what, what, what is that exactly? It occurred to me that um, in the history of our tradition here in the West, there were individuals who used psychotropic drugs, right? Psychedelic drugs and had some experiences that really um, compelled them to kind of go onto a spiritual path or maybe near-death experiences. So I would include that kind of wisdom as well as maybe um, you have a, um, a real realization of, you know, it's not helpful for me to hold on to my ideas about something um, so tightly. Maybe that could be part of wisdom as well. So starting here, can we count off by threes? Do you want to... And we'll go back there. One, two, 